You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Hey, what's up? Good morning, Refuge fam. Uh, hey, if you're new with us, welcome to you as well. Welcome to the Refuge family. Uh, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here at Refuge. Refuge is a new church in Southeast Austin, serving Austin at large. And hey, if you're joining us for the first time, I, I would love to ask if you could do me a favor, which is uh, we would love to connect with you. So jump into the video description, uh, click that link that says connection on it. It's going to pop up a little form, fill that out, send it over to us. We would love to learn how we could pray for you, learn how we can serve you, learn if you need anything uh, to let us know. We know that times are hard right now for some, and, and we would love to do everything we can to help out with that. In addition, to just share a little bit more information about who we are and what we do uh, as a church and invite you to get involved in any way that you see fit. And so, once again, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to connecting with you. Okay, now, on to the business at hand. Uh, we're going to be jumping into the Word of God, into the Scriptures. You know what time it is. We're continuing our series, Jonah, in the book of Jonah. We're going to be diving into chapter 4 today, uh, and, and I'm excited for today. I really am, because I really deeply believe that we're going to relate to this a lot. I believe out of all of the, the chapters in the book of Jonah, which there's only four, but out of all of them, Jonah 4 maybe should remind us of ourselves the most. You may be asking why. Well, check this out. We, if you just take a look around, right, our world, our culture, our society, it's pretty quickly you can tell that we live in a culture, we live in a culture that values our own opinion. We live in a culture that values our own opinion. Whether it's on Facebook or Twitter, right? These are platforms uniquely designed uh, to allow us a place to share our voice, to get our opinion out there. You think about things like platforms like Instagram or YouTube or TikTok, all of them like, like to get subscribers and followers so they can check out what our skills are and, and what we do and our opinions. Like for real, think of anything you could possibly imagine, right? Type it in on YouTube and put the word review at the end of it. You will get an infinitely long list of people willing to tell you their thoughts about X, Y, and Z product to let you know whether you should buy it or not, right? You think about TV shows like, like The Voice or, or America's Got Talent or you're kicking it old school like American Idol, the OG, right? All of them looking at you going, hey, we need you to vote now. Right? We need you to vote. Without your opinion, we, need, we don't know who the right one is, so we need you to tell us. I want your voice. And a lot of us may be looking at what I'm saying right now and thinking to ourselves, like, how is that wrong? That doesn't seem bad. Right? We want to be able to share our voice. And, and that's true. Right? It's a good thing to be able to speak out against injustice. It's a good thing to be able to, to speak out about the things that are wrong and make our voice heard. But hear me, even great things in the hands of human beings pose very real dangers. They, even great things in the hands of human beings pose very real dangers. And here's the danger. In a culture where everything and everyone is pushing us to share our voice, it's easy to be fooled into thinking that our voice is the only one that matters. I'm going to say that again because I want you to hear it. In a culture where everything and everyone is pushing us to share our voice, it's easy to be fooled into thinking that our voice is the only one that matters. 
what ha- and what happens, hear me, what happens when, when, we're, when we're filled in a world with a bunch of people who really only value their voice above everything else? You have a world that's full of hurt, angry, bitter people. Right, exhibit A, the 2020 presidential elections. And hear me, I'm not making a political statement here. I'm simply saying there were two sides who did not believe their opinion was the better of the two opinions, but rather that their way was the only way. Their voice was the only one that mattered. And so whichever voice lost, there was going to be a group of people that had a deeply difficult time moving on from that. Right? In a culture where everything and everyone pushes us to share our voice, it's easy for us to be fooled into thinking that our voice is the only one that matters. But what happens, what happens when our voice, the only one that really matters to us often, is in conflict with God's voice and God's voice wins? What happens when our voice is in conflict with God's voice And God's voice wins. That's what we find today in Jonah chapter 4. That's where we find Jonah today in Jonah chapter 4. Okay, to give you a bit of a a recap of what we've been covering the past few weeks. After being told in Jonah chapter 1 by God to go and preach to the city of Nineveh, the capital uh, of an enemy nation to Israel, Jonah's people, um, Jonah resists that call and runs the exact opposite direction. And through a series of events, one including a rather large fish, if you know that story, uh, Jonah ends up back on land and he does in fact go to the city of Nineveh and preach. And he tells them, God has said in 40 days, the city of Nineveh is going to be demolished. And to everyone's surprise, this leads to the Ninevites repenting, taking responsibility for their actions and turning from their evil and violent ways. And seeing this, God relents. He, he spares Nineveh of the coming destruction. And Jonah is left in the position as someone who never believed Nineveh deserved warning in the first place. Here in Jonah chapter 4, we find Jonah in a place where he's frustrated and angry, looking at the situation and thinking to himself, that's not right. That's not right. He's angry. He's frustrated. Hear me. He's bitter. He's bitter. What do you mean he's bitter? We'll check out Jonah chapter 4, and let's just take a look at verse 1 real quick, right? It says, We just got through reading God sparing Nineveh. And then in Jonah chapter four, verse one, it says in response or or seeing God's mercy, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious, a.k.a. my man was bitter. My man was bitter. And that's what I want to explore today. That's what I want to explore with you today. Bitterness. Both Jonah's bitterness and hear me, our bitterness. I want us to take a look at bitterness and and to to think about where it comes from, to think about what it does, to think about how we fight it. In a world where our opinion is the only one that matters to us, we will also see that we we live in a world where bitterness is rampant. And oftentimes we are ill-equipped to fight against it. But it's my hope today that as we wrestle through the topic of bitterness, we will come to learn that it's actually only in the discomfort of humility that we find freedom from bitterness. Hearing in that it's only in the discomfort of humility 
that we find freedom from bitterness. To help us work through this idea, we're going to break the text down into three parts. Um, The first one we're going to jump into uh, is the birth of bitterness. Okay, I want to explore where bitterness comes from, the birth of bitterness. So let's go ahead and start there. We're going to take a look at verse 2 in Jonah chapter 4. So let's go ahead and dive into that. We're going to be reading the CSB. That'll be on your screen. You can read along in whatever version you want, though. Um, Having read uh, Jonah's emotional response, in verse 2, we get Jonah's verbal response. Verse 2 says, He, Jonah, prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Mm, Lord, thank you for your word. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, where we find Jonah today in Jonah chapter 4. He's, he's seen the Ninevites. He's seen the city of Nineveh receive mercy, and he's angry. He's bitter. He's using language like, I knew this when I was still at home, right? That's why I ran in the first place. In other words, he's saying, I knew it. I knew it. I knew that when you told me way back there at home in chapter 1, right, to go and preach to the Ninevites, I knew that end game for you was to show them mercy. I knew it because you're a compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, full of love type of God. And I knew the moment you told me that was going to be the end game, showing them mercy. And here's the thing. I don't agree. I don't agree. I don't think they deserve it. You ever been there before? You ever been there before? You've seen someone get that promotion or you've seen someone get that relationship. You've seen someone get a new job. You see someone get maybe a new opportunity, a grade. And you look at them and think to yourself, they don't deserve that, right? You start feeling this sense of frustration. You start feeling the sense of resentment. You start feeling bitterness. And what happens right after that? Right after we see that person receive that thing that we don't think they deserve, we start this never-ending process of indexing everything I've done right and, and, and indexing everything they've done wrong. I end up counting everything I've done right and counting everything they've done wrong. And that gives way to this process of this never-ending uh, process of trying to figure out whether they deserve this or whether I deserve that, who deserves what. It doesn't even have to be for something serious. It doesn't have to be like for, for, for these big deals in our lives. It can be something small, something dumb. When you go get food with your friends and somebody gets an extra chicken nugget and you're like, why why don't I ever get chicken nuggets? Right? They ain't even nice to the drive-thru person. If they were trying to give a chicken nugget to somebody, they should have been trying to give it to me. I was nice to the person. Right? This is how it goes. This is our response. And friends, hear me. There's there's a name for that process. There's a name for for that counting what I've done right and counting what someone else has done wrong, for, for trying to figure out whether this person deserves that or that person deserves this or I deserve something, hope maybe that I don't even have. There's a process for that. The name for that is called pride. It's called pride. And hear me, friends, pride, pride births bitterness. That's where it comes from. Bitterness comes from pride. Pride births bitterness. 
You see, pride makes us the judge and the jury of who deserves what and who's earned what. Pride elevates our voice to the highest voice, our opinion to the highest opinion, our say to the final say. And that sets us up. It sets us up perfectly. It sets us up beautifully for what? It sets us up beautifully for bitterness. It sets us up beautifully for bitterness. Because when our say is the final say, when our say, the final say, what we believe is right, is different than the reality that we're living in, all we can see, all we can see around us is how everybody that's not us is wrong. It could be our spouse. It could be our friends. It could be our parents. It could be our children. It could even be God. Just take a look at Jonah. When Jonah's final say, what he thinks is best, is trumped by God's final say, the result is bitterness. The result is anger. The result is fury. The, re- fury. the result is bitterness. How many of us have been here? Friends, how many of us have been right here? How many of us have experienced something or seen something we don't think is fair, we don't think is right, and the bitterness runs so deep that even God is put on trial in our heart? Right? That even God is put on trial in our heart. And you might be thinking to yourself, but, but Josh, what if it's unfair? What if it actually is unfair? What if it actually is not right? And friend, I want to pause here. Hear me. I understand. That's not what I'm saying. What, I'm not saying that never happens. We live in a broken world. We live in a broken world where, where bad things do in fact happen to good people. I'm not debating that whatsoever. But hear me. Pride oftentimes clouds the difference between the two things. Pride oftentimes clouds the difference between the two things. What do you mean? Well, what I mean is that pride doesn't just elevate the things we've done right. It minimizes the things we've done wrong. Hear me. Pride doesn't just elevate the things we've done right. It minimizes the things we've done wrong. Check this out. In verse 2, Jonah describes God as merciful, right? It's a general description. Well, let's let's check it out. Let's take another look. We're just about halfway through chapter 2. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Now, the only thing is that these descriptions for God are not like, are not original bars from Jonah, Right? They're, not, they're not things that are coming from his uh, uh, vocabulary. He didn't make these up on the spot. Rather, he's actually quoting another part of the Bible, an older part of the Bible, a part of the Bible that actually comes from one of the darkest times in Israel's history. It's the, actually the story of when Moses received the Ten Commandments. This is in Exodus 34. And it tells a story of, of the book of Exodus in general, of how God delivers Israel from slavery. And, and while they're in the desert, he gives the wilderness, he gives uh, Moses and the people a way to live, the way he wants them to live as his chosen people. And on his way down the mountain, Moses looks down and sees the entire nation of Israel bowing down and worshiping a golden calf in idol and calling it God. In fact, they give it God's own name, Yahweh. And in this moment, a moment where Israel deserved punishment, deserved destruction, instead, God gives them mercy. 
God gives them forgiveness. Hear me, God spares Israel. And in his mercy, God declares that he's a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and full of faithful love. Do you see the irony? Do you see the irony? Jonah is quoting an instance where Israel, his people, were guilty and in need of God's mercy and they received it. Yet in, in this instance, Nineveh is guilty and in, needs of God, in need of God's mercy and he doesn't believe they deserve it. Two instances of mercy from a gracious and compassionate God on two guilty parties, yet in Jonah's mind, somehow they're different. Somehow they're different. One group deserves mercy and it's a good thing, but the other group does not deserve mercy somehow and it's a bad thing. Friends, pride elevates what we've done right, but it also minimizes what we've done wrong. It finds ways, pride, it finds ways to excuse us of the same things that we desire to hold others accountable for. And the justifications are, are endless. They're infinite. Maybe it's who we are, right? Like, well, well, I'm young, so I'm expected to make mistakes, or I'm old, so I've really earned the right to say and do what I want. Maybe it's that I'm wealthier or, or I'm poor, and so I'm expected to do these types of things. Maybe it's the duration of our wrongdoing. They did it longer than me. I, I didn't do it as long as they did it. Or, or, or maybe it's that I used to do it, right? I used to do this wrong thing, but they are still doing this wrong thing, and, and I don't do that wrong thing anymore. Pride elevates what we've done right but pride also minimizes what we've done wrong. And hear me, friends, this pride is a breeding ground for bitterness. It's a breeding ground for bitterness. It births bitterness. It births anger. It births, it, it births this, this, this frustration, this, this bitterness. And once that bitterness is birthed, once it comes to the light, we are saddled then with the burden of bitterness, what it does in our life. That's our second point. I want you to write that down. Now that we've understood where bitterness comes from, the birth of bitterness, I want to see what Jonah 4 has to say about the burden of bitterness, what it does. Take a look at verse 2 again. We're going to read verse 2, but this time we're going to add in verse 3. All right? Let's check it out. Verse 2 again says, He, Jonah, prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Wow. Do you see that? Jonah is so angry at God, so mad at God's actions, that he actually wants to die. He's saying, Lord, just take my life. And what has God done to, to elicit such a response from Jonah? That's the craziest part. God's just been merciful. He's just been gracious. He's just been good. He's just been loving. That's all. Yet for Jonah, this is the worst thing in the world. Why? Because of the burden of bitterness. Friends, the burden of bitterness is that bitterness can make even the sweetest things in our lives bitter. 
hear me again, the burden of bitterness is that bitterness can make even the sweetest things in our lives bitter. Think about this. God's compassion, his grace, his love, his patience, all things that Jonah and Jonah's people have benefited from in their own lives. Yet in this moment, in Jonah's eyes, these same things are now disgusting. These same things are now appalling. These same things now make him want to die. Let's make this a little more vivid, okay? Because the language here, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, faithful love. In the Hebrew language, these words actually had a close association with motherly love, with the tender and gentle love of a mother. Yet here, Jonah's so mad, Jonah's so mad that seeing this gentle, tender love makes him want to die. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Seriously, think about it. Imagine with me. Imagine walking in a park, seeing a mother lovingly, gently caring for her child and responding like, oh, God, just kill me. Just kill me. It's crazy. It's crazy, right? But, but that's what bitterness does. Bitterness is crazy. Bitterness, that's the burden of bitterness. It, it, it makes even the sweetest things in our lives bitter. I love how Eric Redmond, he's a pastor and a professor uh, of theology in the Washington, D.C. area. And he captures this idea, I think, beautifully in his commentary on Jonah. He says it like this. Jonah takes issue with God being merciful, one who cares for people tenderly and compassionately as a mother would care for a child, the Hebrew concept behind the words. That God would be one who would look down at evil and violent people, his enemies no less, and lean over them the way a good mother leans over a baby's crib, tenderly holding and caressing that baby, is an issue for Jonah. Mm. It reminds me of a story I once heard a buddy of mine share. He told me about a Saturday morning tradition he has, uh, or he has with his two sons, uh, a younger boy and an older boy, both of them pretty young in general, though. It's a Saturday morning tradition where they would all get up early, come downstairs, and they would make pancakes together. More like dad would make them pancakes, and they would spend time laughing, catching up about the week, sharing time together, celebrating uh, just their relationship, bonding. And one morning, he remembers that his oldest boy comes down the stairs, and and they laugh, they greet each other, they they settle in, and, and dad begins to pour the pancake mix into the pan. He flips it, he finishes it, he puts it on the plate. He puts it on the plate and he covers it in whipped cream and strawberries. He, oh, he puts just the works, right? He puts it in front of his son, his oldest boy, and he just starts digging in, right? And he starts saying, Dad, these are the best pancakes ever, all that good stuff. He, he's pretty young, so he's just excited about things that are on his plate. And shortly after that, the younger son comes stumbling down the stairs, sleep in his eyes, uh, and he sits down at the counter. He greets his dad and his dad starts pouring pancake mix into the into the pan and they're laughing and they're carrying on and and the dad's distracted and he pours a little bit extra a little bit more than he put in the last one he he flips it over he puts it on the plate he covers it in whipped cream and strawberries and he gives it to the younger son the younger son the youngest son starts digging in dad these are the best pancakes ever you know the same spiel except for he looks over at his oldest son and notices that his older son has a scrunched up face. And he looks at him and he says, hey, what's wrong? 
The older son looks at the younger son's plate, looks back at his dad, simply says, this pancake's bigger than mine. In a moment where he had everything that he wanted in front of him, great pancakes, his family, the affection and attention of his father, the only thing he could think of was that pancake is bigger than mine. And he pushes his plate away. The laughter in the room dims down and he becomes more quiet. He becomes more reserved, no longer enjoying his dad, no longer enjoying his brother. Friends, bitterness, bitterness makes even the sweetest things in our life bitter. It makes even the sweetest things in our life bitter. It robs us of peace, joy, love, contentment. It shackles us in victimhood, and it distracts us from a loving father who desires nothing more than to give us good gifts. Friends, that's the burden of bitterness. That's what happens when we allow pride to infect our hearts and make us the judge and make us the jury and make our voice the only one that matters. It gives way to a bitterness, a bitterness uh, that, that, that robs us of joy, that robs us of peace. Yeah, we may have a moment of peace, we may have a moment of joy, but the burden of bitterness, that burden that we're saddled with, eventually drags us back into this never-ending process of trying to figure out what we deserve that we don't have and what they don't deserve that they have. It's a thief. It's a thief. It's here to zap our joy and to zap our peace and to zap our contentment and to zap the value that we have in a loving father, the worship that we're meant to give him, the joy that he's meant to bring us. That's the burden of bitterness. It's evil, friends. And so where do we go from here? Right? You might be saying, hey, bro, like I've heard enough. Uh, You got me. Just tell me how to get out of it now. Where do we need to go? What do we need to do here? And an easy response might be, well, just humility, right? Be humble, be humble. But, but here's the thing. Being humble is not the solution to being bitter. It's the opposite of being bitter. They're both state of beings. I can't simply say I'm gonna be humble any more than I can say I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 30 pounds lighter. It takes work to get from there, from point A to point B. There's something else that has to happen. That's not the solution. Hear me, the solution isn't being humble. Hear me, the solution is being humbled. The solution isn't being humble. The solution is being humbled, being brought down to size. In other words, not what I can do, not in my own hands, because in my hands, I'm going to elevate what I've done right. I'm going to minimize what I've done wrong. No, I I need someone else to come in and to help me correctly see myself And friends, this is where the message of Jesus comes in. Hear me, this is where the message of Jesus comes in. Because it's only in the message of Jesus that we learn that we've all, men, women, tall, short, white, black, brown, tall, fat, short, skinny, that we've all been handmade by God. And as a result, we're all equally worthy of dignity and equally worthy of respect We don't have the ability to hold who we are over anyone else because they deserve everything that we deserve. But it's also only in the message of Jesus that we learn that we've all collectively failed as well. 
that as a result, we're all equally guilty. Romans 3.23, right, says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no better. There's no worse. There's no more deserving. There's no less deserving. There's simply perfect and not perfect, holy and not holy. And we've all collectively found ourselves in the imperfect, not holy category. We have found ourselves in the undeserving group. We found ourselves in the haven't earned it group. We found ourselves in the guilty group. We don't need to be humble, friends. We need to be humbled. And the message of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, is the great humbler. But, but it's also the great hope. The message of Jesus is the great humbler, but it's also the great hope. Because it's in the message of Jesus, it's in this good news that we learn of this Jesus. That we learn of this Jesus who, though he was uniquely God's son, left the splendors of heaven to be born in a smelly barn. We learn of this Jesus who, though he knew the record of every single person he met, treated each of them with equal dignity and respect and love. We learn of this Jesus who was willing to go hungry but multiplied food to feed thousands. And we learn of this Jesus... We learn of this Jesus who was the only one to live a life worthy of pride, to live a life worthy, earning every good gift from God, yet laid down his life to die the shameful death of someone who had earned nothing so that you and I who had earned earned nothing could be given everything. I may not have the home I want in this world, But Jesus has told me that he's going to prepare a place for me in his father's house. I may not have the health I want in this life, but Jesus has told me that there will be a day when there is no more disease and there is no more death. I may not have the relationship that I want right now, but Jesus, because of him, he's told me that there will be a day where I will celebrate the union, the marriage of him to his bride, me, the church, and be joyfully in love forever. I may not have everything my soul longs for right now, but there will be a day when I'm reunited with my creator and I'm embraced by the lover of my soul. And on that day, the pains of this world, the longings that I didn't have will fade like a distant memory. They'll go like a vapor in the wind, like streams in water. And I'll have everything my soul longed for. Friends, that's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope we have in humility. That's our last point. If you're going to write something down for our last point here, write the hope in humility. The hope in humility is that right when we think who we are and what we've earned couldn't get any worse, that that our decisions, our mistakes couldn't get any worse, the grace, love, compassion of Jesus comes in and lifts up our heads to tell us that he's given us far more than we could ever earn in the first place. That's the hope in humility. That's the hope of the gospel. Friends, it's a death blow to pride and it's, it's the freedom from the burden of bitterness. It's in this discomfort, this discomfort that comes when we're being humbled, the discomfort of humility that we don't just find freedom from bitterness. Find, friend, we find so much more. We find a heart full of gratitude. We find a heart full of gratitude. We find a host, a world, a life full of things to be thankful for. It reminds me of the story of Anne Steele. 
And you may not know who that is, and that's all right. Anne Steele was a 16th century English poet and hymn writer, and she was dope. She was dope for 100 years after her death. She was actually the most published female hymn writer in both the U.S. and England. For all accounts, or from all accounts, she seemed to be a quiet woman, a devout Christian. There wasn't much in her life that was outside of the ordinary. Some believe that she probably had more interactions with hardship than your average person, but nothing out of the ordinary besides that. Yet, she remained faithful to God. She clung to her faith even in hardship until one day she met a man. She met a man who treated her special. She met a man that made her feel special, made her feel seen, made her feel loved. And they fell in love. They fell in love. And eventually he asked her if she would marry him, and she said yes, and they got engaged. And there wasn't anything special or unique about the engagement. It was filled with hope. It was filled with excitement. It was filled with anticipation. Until finally the wedding day came, and, and she arrived early, and she got ready. Then the crowd arrived, and they began to gather together in the church full of anticipation, waiting to celebrate the, the, the new marriage, the new couple. And it wasn't until 15 minutes until the service began that, that young Anne began to become nervous, learning that her fiancé actually still wasn't there. He hadn't showed up yet. And the 15 minutes passed to the service start time, and still he's not there. And 30 minutes pass until an hour past the beginning of the service, a messenger arrived, a messenger from the local hospital who was there to let her fiancé, Robert's family, know and young Anne know that sadly the night before, Robert had drowned and he had died. And Anne wept full of grief and full of sorrow. Yet from this grief and sorrow came the words of a hymn that's still sung today. Father, whatever earthly bliss thy sovereign will denies, accepted at thy throne of grace, let this petition rise. Give me a calm, thankful heart from every murmur free, the blessings of thy grace in part. And make me live to thee. In a moment where grief and pain could have easily mixed with pride and given birth to bitterness in Anne's heart, instead, there was a gratitude. A gratitude that was fueled by humility, humility that can only come from an experience with God's grace, with God's mercy, with God's love. And those experiences, friends, those experiences, yes, they are humbling. Yes, they, they, they are sometimes scary. But friends, it's those experience that, experiences that give way to peace, that give way to contentment, that give way to joy. And hear me, the earthly pleasures that, that Anne's heart longed for, even the one that she probably was saddened by in the death of her fiancé in this moment, right now, Look at me. They're a distant memory for Anne Steele. They're a distant memory for Anne Steele right now. Friends, this type of gratitude, this type of humility, it's what I desire for us. It's what I desire for you as your pastor. It's what I want for you. 
It's, it's this type of humility that, that shapes, that forms us, that, that frees us from bitterness, that, 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 that fills our heart rather with bitterness but with gratitude. That, that, that opens us up to enjoy the good gifts of God as our Heavenly Father, to enjoy the beautiful pancake that he's laid out for us in, in our Saturday morning traditions, to, to enjoy the good gifts that he's showered on us so that he can show us the deep affection that he has for us so that they can move us to worshiping him. To worshiping him and being filled with peace and joy and contentment. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not one moment. But friends, it is an ongoing pursuit of the peace, of the stillness, of the joy that comes with knowing that I am his and that he is mine. And that though I deserve nothing, Jesus in the goodness of God has given me everything. It's this same type of humility, this gratitude. This gratitude that that births out compassion for others, others who are longing for the same things that we're longing for, longing for freedom from compassion, a freedom from bitterness, that are longing for compassion, that are longing to feel the joy, that are longing to feel the gratitude that we, we, we have access to in Jesus, in the message of Jesus, in the gospel. People in our community, it's this forming, this transformation that's necessary in order for us to do the things as Refuge Community Church that we long to do. That's what I want for us, friends. That's what today's about. And here, before we go, I have, I have two applications to help us wrestle with this bitterness and invite humility into our lives. The first, the first is that I want to encourage you to, to forgive and ask for forgiveness. Now, now, hear me. When I say this, I don't mean in your mind. I mean verbally, out loud, to forgive and ask for forgiveness. Oftentimes when we intentionally ask for forgiveness, it, it quiets down those, those justifications, those minimizations of the things we've done wrong, right? And, and when we forgive others out loud, it reminds us that we don't have a right to hold anything over anyone else, right? They reinforce humility. They, they reinforce, they humble us, right, these actions into acknowledging that, that what we have is by grace and what we have is by mercy. The second thing, is that I want to encourage you to wrestle with the word. What does that mean? That sounds super weird. Well, oftentimes it's easy to read the Bible like we live our lives, elevating the good and minimizing the bad, right? It's easy to read the promises of scripture and to put our name in it, to be encouraged, and then to get out of Dodge, right? Rather, uh, what I would encourage us to do is that when we encounter challenging things in scripture, hard things in scripture, things that we want to either push to the side or even worse, just apply to other people that we don't think are good people. I want to encourage us to wrestle with them by applying them to ourselves, right? Question whether this thing fits you, right? Find yourself in the mistakes of Bible characters like Jonah, right? When we do this, we allow the scriptures to humble us, and that's scary. We allow the scriptures to humble us, and that's scary, but, but when we allow the scriptures to humble us, we also invite them to build us back up as we see the mercy, grace, and love of God interacting with us. I think these two things will start us on the process, start us in the process. And, and again, I emphasize process uh, of finding freedom from pride and bitterness in the mercy, in the grace we've received from Jesus. Okay, so... 
That's it. We're going to go ahead and pray to finish up. We're going to jump into a moment of, of worship in response to the word, and then we're going to come back and I'll give us a parting blessing. Okay, I want you to join me in praying. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Father, thank you that even though we have not earned anything, that even when we come to the scary reality, the scary bottom that teaches us that in a world that tells us we are what we've earned, we must not be anything, yet in the grace and mercy that you give us, you've uh, told us that you've given us more than we could ever earn, that we are more than we could ever strive to be on this earth. We're yours, your son, your daughter, purchased with the blood of Jesus, made whole, forgiven, given everything as a consequence. We love you. We thank you. I pray that as we invite these truths to humble our hearts, that they would not harden us, but rather they would give way to experiencing a grace and mercy that makes us new, that gives us joy, that gives us peace, that gives us contentment, and that we would respond by worshiping, by loving you. We love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith. 